Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Peter Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University. And I'm joined today, as usual, by my MMU journalism colleague, Dave Porter. Hello, Dave. Hi, Pete. And by Jeremy Craddock. Hi, Jez. Hi, Pete. And we've had a pretty busy week this week, actually. What with a couple of significant developments in the courts over identity and anonymity. Some testy exchanges in the House of Commons over the murder of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And visits to MMU from the head of comms at Greater Manchester to police and the chief in-house lawyer at The Guardian. So we've got a lot to get through. So um, Dave, Jez, what have you been looking at this week? Jez, what about yourself? Yeah, it was interesting to see the news that um, Facebook and Instagram have uh, deleted the accounts of Tommy Robinson. Mm-hmm. Um, it was particularly pertinent this week. We were in Law and Ethics with the Level 6s. We were looking at uh, reporting, um, well, looking at hate speech and re- how you report that and protected classes. And we were we were looking at the fine line between, you know, strong, strident opinion and when it, it strays over into hate speech and incitement. Um, and obviously, Tommy Robinson's claim, and he's the, you know, the advocate of free speech. But interesting to see that the uh, social media giants have taken a stand and saying that he's he's breaching their, I think, is it their community standards on hate, yeah. hate speech. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were actually looking at this with with the first years as well, mm. partly about social media and how social media gets gets used and the impact on on mm. journalism. And and so we were looking at that uh, with with them on on Tuesday. I was I was at the I was down at Salford Keys um, yes. for to to watch the protest. Um, there was a I mean there was a substantial difference between the two because there was a counter counter demonstration going yes. on in another section of, of that area the, the two groups were very much held apart from one yes. another by the police who were on either side of a very large building so about 4,000 people I think turned up to watch this yes. uh, this um, Tommy Robinson's take on the Panorama investigation yeah. into, into what he's doing and I believe it didn't didn't he show a video of an undercover video of John Sweeney he had done yeah. so it's, it's a ploy that he's done in the past mm. so um, last year you remember the, the pretty notorious Sky interview Sky mm. Um, interviewed him and he recorded that mm. so that um, when uh, when Sky broadcast the interview he said well look all my stuff was taken out of context um, and uh, Ofcom dismissed those uh, complaints there yes. were several complaints yeah. made about it but they, they dismissed them out of hand um, and so this time when John Sweeney was uh, was interviewing him for his Panorama documentary um, Stephen Yaxley-Lenin and Tommy Robinson got someone else to film all of that and yes, so that yeah. material was used as part of of this film that he broadcast on a, on a mm. large screen at Salford Keys um, next to the BBC building. Yes. It'd be interesting to see what uh, Tommy Robinson's next step will be in terms of what, what platform he's going to engage with or try to engage with. Yeah, I mean, essentially <coughs> all he's got left is the YouTube channel. Yeah. I mean, well, he's got a lot of subscribers to that, but um, yeah, he's, he's been taken off Facebook and mm. Instagram now. Yes, so it just seemed very pertinent this week whilst we were talking about uh, about that. Yeah, one of the things I was talking to about to the the first years about this was um, the, the the fact that the police kept the two groups very very much apart, and the only people actually who were kind of crossing the boundary mm. between the two were the journalists, oh, um, yes. and so there were there were a couple of photographers um, who took pictures of both. Um, and they got, uh, by all accounts, quite a lot of grief when they moved yeah. into into the Tommy Robinson crowd. Yes. They were getting a lot of uh, abuse from people there. Yeah. Um, but one of the other elements to that, actually, is that um, one of the photographers, Joel Goodman, now wears a body camera 
the whole time oh, so okay. that he can film any of these yeah. interactions with people um, and if there's any any suggestion of abuse and so on then he's able to use that footage we've moved into such a, an interesting and, and different area haven't yeah. we as uh, as technologies move forward and and this kind of um move towards being open and transparent about the way journalism is done actually yeah yeah um, very much so that's one of the things that we'll <clears throat> we'll come to when i, I spoke I, I just a little while ago to jill phillips from the guardian that i mentioned yes. just a moment ago so jill talks a lot about data and you and mm. kind of keeping hold of data so dave yeah. we'll, we'll come to that in a little sure. while but, yeah. dave what have you been looking at this week uh well the uh james bulger and uh, the uh, Ralph, yeah. his father, and uh, the High Court bid to have anonymity for um, Venables overturned, and um, considering basic of the argument being that you know according to Jane, uh, Ralph Mac, Ralph uh, something has gone wrong. Quotes and uh, obviously he's been um, no Venables has been convicted in the past of various offences, and it's in the public interest to um, basically you know. To reveal his identity. Interestingly, he's Denise the wife, Bolger Denise is, 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 is opposed to the application. Part in it, yeah. No, she's opposed to it. I suppose not on, on compassionate grounds, but on, on the very you know fair assumption that it may open up um, to vigilante attacks, and of course, yeah. an innocent person may well be um, mm. you know may well be targeted. Which in this I way. guess has always been at the back of people's minds for you know for, yes. for all this time that, yeah. that that's yeah. one of the reasons why well, they, we, they, we, the anonymity order was placed in the first, yes, first yes. place. Yes, I mean it was interesting if you look back at the case, the anonymity order was you know they were never named in the first place mm. they were then subsequently named really due to public pressure Michael Howard overturning that and, Michael um, Howard who was the Home Secretary yes, at the time the, yes yeah. so it's, it's a case not without its obvious controversies and uh, I suspect you know obviously that the lawyers for uh, Venables would argue Article 2 and 3 you know right to life, right to life uh, and yeah. right free from uh, to be not subjected to inhumane or degrading treatment etc mm. so I, I think it's a hard one to win um, yeah. But it shows it's very interesting given, given Venable's recent history of offending um, the way things mm. are going. Yeah, it's, it's a very high legal hurdle to, to jump. And, I think and it previous, is. there have been similar previous attempts, haven't there? And they've all yes. failed, they've all yeah. been ruled out. No, I can't mm. see this one going through. Um, yeah. But yeah, really interesting case to watch and see what the outcome is. Yeah, well, we, we certainly will come back to it um, as and when as and when we get a ruling from the from the Court of Appeal. Um, is it the Court of Appeal High Court in London? High, court, the high court. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay, so we'll come back to that. Um, high Court decisions. Um, we're we're going to go north of the border very briefly um, to have a look at uh, a, a decision again on identity anonymity. Aaron Campbell, who was found guilty last week of of the rape and murder of the six year old Alicia McPhail, um, a really really harrowing trial. Mm. Um, and uh, Lord Matthews, um, the day after the trial, because of considerable public pressure, um, to name Aaron Campbell as the as the killer. Um, made a judgment um very very rare in scotland very very rare in scots law that um anybody under the legal age should have their identity revealed um and he he ruled that because of partly out of public public interest and that was interest by by the media but in more mm. general public interest uh, issues he he referred to and also said that there was no way that people in Polmont Young Offenders Institution, which is where he's he's mm. now incarcerated, um, people there would not know who he was, and so and there was on, uh, and on social media and on social media. So mm. yeah, um, an, an interesting, uh, an interesting and and very highly unusual um, decision mm. from from mm. one of the Scottish courts. 
Ros McInnes, who is the, the BBC Scotland's in-house lawyer, um, she said um, there have been a couple of recent cases. Um, and then there's a question, of course, about does this set any precedent? Uh, mm. Precedent law in Scotland is, is different from, from south of the border. Um, but she says really not necessarily. Um, judges will obviously look at these if these um, kind of claims come up in, in future. Mm. But in practice, it's very rare for cases like this to come before the courts and, and yeah. Lord Matthews himself sort of made that point really. I mean it's interesting actually the, the, the legal age was 16 of course in Scotland um, and it was raised. Un until, until very recently. Until recently yeah, yeah. yes yeah. and now mm. of course it's 18 yeah. um, so actually if it had been a few years ago it may well have been named anyway. Yeah, yeah mm. absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay, so um, we'll have a quick look now at those those questions I mentioned uh, at, the, at the intro. Uh, questions to the Foreign Office in the House of Commons on Tuesday from the Shadow Foreign Secretary Emily Thornberry over the murder of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. She asked the Foreign Office Minister Mark Field what action the government was taking to find out who was ultimately responsible, as she put it, ultimately responsible for his death in the Saudi embassy in Turkey. When we gather for the next uh, Foreign Office questions on April the 2nd, it will be six months to the day since Kamal Khashoggi was murdered in Istanbul. So could he ask his boss, the Foreign Secretary, to guarantee to the House that before we reach that sad milestone, he will present the government's findings on who ultimately is responsible for that murder and what actions the government is taking in response? Yeah. Uh, my right honourable friend, the Foreign Secretary, is going to be going to Saudi this week and I hope that there will be progress in relation to the uh, very serious issues that the right honourable lady uh, brings up in the House. May I also say this, uh, as she will be aware that uh, in July we are going to be hosting uh, a conference um, in this country, um, again, I think a very important part of British global soft power, uh, a conference that uh, will look at the whole issue of uh, the dangers that journalists have to go through uh, across the world. The fact that uh, we are uh, doing that, I think, will reflect well, uh, and I hope that uh, she and her party will want to play an important part in, in that role, because uh, we need freedom uh, for, for journalism, uh, for journalists to go about their everyday business. Um, and it, obviously the Khashoggi situation is... Uh, what, uh, the, the worst, the more glaring example, that some 80 journalists were murdered doing their business uh, last year and many hundreds have been locked up and uh, I think internationally we need to come together to stand up for those, uh, those values. I thank the Minister for that answer and uh, whilst the conference is important it's hardly an answer to the question of a murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, there are no official answers and there are no official answers, um, and no official actions and worse than that we are in a position where the Foreign Secretary goes to Berlin last week and tells one of the few governments willing to act on Khashoggi by banning arms sales to Yemen that they are wrong to do so. So can I ask the Minister to ask his, his uh, boss once more, and it's a simple request, by the time of the next Foreign Office questions, six months on from the Khashoggi murder, will the Foreign Secretary be telling us all the people who are, he believes are responsible and what action, what action they are going to take in response. As I've said, uh, my right honourable friend will be in uh, Saudi Arabia. This issue clearly will be discussed and I hope that he will be in a position to be able to uh, update the House uh, on the 2nd of April or indeed uh, prior to that time. May I also just say, uh, she issued the issue about uh, uh, the arms trade. Um, we um, are, are proud to build upon the um, contribution made by Robin Cook when he was 
Foreign Secretary, that it means that uh, the re- regulations around arms sales uh, here in the, in the UK are amongst the strictest across the Western world, and they will continue in that vein. Testy exchanges in there, and judging by the... And Jeremy, Jeremy Hunt, the, the Foreign Secretary, was sitting right next to Mark Field there, and Emily Thornberry very quite pointedly pointing at him as she, she asked some of those questions. So, But it, it sounds like we may well have to wait until early April for a full progress report. If you have a comment on that or any of the other stories that we're covering in today's podcast, please do let us know on Twitter at RightsBang. But away from the news, our journalism students here at MMU have been hearing this week from the Head of Communications at Greater Manchester Police, Amanda Coleman. So, Jez, she came into to one of your lectures. What did she have to say? She did, yeah. It was, it was great to have her in. Um, she's been in previously and always um students always find a very interesting Great value yeah. yeah i mean amanda is a uh, formerly a print journalist so mm-hmm. she, she completely understands how we work and then she's had 20 years at greater manchester police in the communications department uh, she was explain she gave an overview to the students of the work that they do um and she said that gmp is uh, one of the the three biggest uh, police forces in the country after the, the Met and West Midlands Police. Um, so she talked about the work they did and she, she pretty much put it in the context of um, how they responded to the Manchester Arena bombing. Um, and really the message that came out of it that what they've learned over time is that rather than you know being a press office that's there to protect the image of the police, it's very much about putting people at the centre of the work they do and she said it was never more important than in the aftermath of the the bombing um, you know putting the the victims families central to the job that they did and really protecting them um, you know particularly with the intense media attention that there was following that um, and she touched upon the things like the Kerslake uh, mm-hmm. inquiry into you know what could be learned from the way the media responded to the uh, to the uh, terrorist attack you know what what kind of ethical things could be learned that could be passed on to the media um and she talked about the the kind of the toll it took on on her staff as well you know obviously the things that they encountered during the course of their work and the kind of the counselling that's taken place afterwards as well. Yeah, she you she know. told me I, I spoke to her just after that. <clears throat> yes. she, so she told me that they'd done a they'd done a pile of work after Kerslake in mm. response to that, and it's still still kind of unfinished business in in many many ways. And uh, so I, I also asked her about those the, the ways that they deal with victims' families, not just yes. in the arena attack, but many many other mm. cases and live cases. I also wanted to know from from Amanda how it is that they they handle media interest in a case when it has come to court if you go right back to when we put information out about uh, an incident um, that happens uh, obviously we're appealing to try and make sure we can get an arrest on that so we'll put as much information out as we can right back at that stage Uh, we work really closely with the investigation team and with the officer who's in charge of the case because we have to be careful that anything we say um, isn't going to impact on what they might want to say um, so if they bring, when they bring somebody in to interview them, um, we need to know exactly what we've released and what we've said and what the media have reported, uh, because often people will say, oh, well, I heard it on the media, um, I heard it on the radio or whatever, and, um, and we know 
we haven't that hasn't been said or isn't out. And then obviously it's really important for them because it, it places them right at the heart of the incident. So so we, it starts at that point and, and then we'll track cases through uh, court, officers will come to us. Uh, the bigger cases we, we keep a really close eye on and then um, as we build up towards a court case, if it's a very complicated case, uh, we'll work with the Crown Prosecution Service, comms people, uh, with the officers and we'll either do a pre-trial briefing um, and that's when we know it's uh, going to be a really complicated trial um, and it's going to involve a lot of either fraud um, and, and difficult issues or it covers, um, you know, it's covering, say, across a number of different other investigations um, and trials and we need to try and explain that to journalists so that they get a really good understanding before they step into the courtroom. And so that's when we do a pre-trial briefing. Um, and then if it's not quite as, as complex and we can do it pre-verdict, then we'll do a pre-verdict briefing. Um, and in those briefings, as I say, it's all run by the Crown Prosecution Service, so we know with the protocols that have got, we've got in place with them that if something is going to be released at court, then obviously people can, uh, journalists can ask for that and we will provide that, uh, things like exhibits and whatnot and, and photographs or whatever. Um, and then we'll, we'll give the package of information. So yeah, they get a chance to speak to the officers, they get a chance to get a bit more background um, and go away and do their own research and background based on what we've said. Um, and they'll know what exhibits and what images or whatever moving footage, CCTV might be coming. Um, so and, yeah. And does that, does that include like, you know, providing interviews through the liaison officers, providing interviews with like, you know, a bereaved family or a victim's family or whatever for um, for people that will turn up later on on, on television or radio or wherever? It can do, yeah. Um, and we'll, we work closely with the family liaison officers who are appointed. So when it's a case where it's potentially uh, been a murder investigation or something um, of that sort of nature, then we'll have had a, long com you know, a number of, of meetings potentially with victims' families. Uh, we'll talk to them about what they want to do. Um, some may want to speak to the media, some may just want to provide a statement um, about what's happened or some kind of form of tribute. So we, we work quite closely all the way along uh, with both. So yeah, that's that's Amanda Coleman from, from Greater Manchester Police and, and a big Thanks to her for, for coming in. I think, I think Jez, the, the students got quite a lot out of that. They did, yes, certainly, yes, yeah. And we've had another guest in, in MMU this, this week. Um, earlier today, Dave, we had a visit from Gillian Phillips at The Guardian. She's our Director of Legal Services. Yes, effectively, the Chief In-House Lawyer. She gave a fantastic mm. talk to the uh, MA students, talked about uh, what it's like to work in a you know, large news environment and basically having journalists knock on her door uh, throughout the day and the evening and querying copy and you know, legaling stories. And, but, but actually, what was really interesting was the way she talked about the way things have changed in the past you know, five to ten yeah. years because of the arrival, of course, you know, of digital media and... Uh, you know, things like the Data Protection Act and how she's always had to remind journalists how, you know, because we love to kind of, you know, have old notebooks, store data in all sorts of formats, in all sorts of ways, all over the places, and how, you know, the DPA and GDPR is having a real, like, day-to-day -day, uh, impact upon how journalists work, how they view in th how they view data, if, even given, you know, the fact that we do have journalistic exemptions and public interest, how increasingly it's becoming a tool, to, you know, to try and, uh, you know, I think her phrase was the tanks are, are gathering the on the lawn. Tanks are gathering on, that, on yeah. our lawn. So yeah, I, yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, and, and she was saying... She 
she's actually you know increasingly telling uh, journalists to, to go uh, off not offline but sort of you know analog back to pen and paper. Yeah, keep so, less was yeah, the phrase. Keep that she less. Used. Yeah, keep uh, less. And yeah. uh, and then the other really interesting uh, line that she she spoke about was the you know again related to the use of privacy law to uh, increasingly backed by uh, claimants uh, where previously might have used defamation to protect reputation. As we know, and as we've told our students, they're now using privacy, uh, for example, to protect uh, or to stop information mm-hmm. um, being published about, for example, criminal investigations, arrests. She talked about pre, uh, pre-publication... Um, Injunctions. Sorry, yes, yeah. I was going to say inquest. Then, but, uh, <laughs> that was last week. That was last week's <laughs> inquest in my mind. Uh, yes, pre, pre-trial um, injunctions and how they're increasingly uh, you know, common, especially where privacy is, is, is concerned, and how actually it poses a, an ethical dilemma for journalists because you know, do we take the decision to get a right reply and, and possibly uh, have to put, hold a story for three or four months, as, for example, the, the Philip Green one, or do we run without mm. a reply and risk... Uh, being sued so actually I thought it was a fantastic uh, talk and I think the students got a lot from it yeah yeah I mean really really interesting and I I mean I guess one of the the misconceptions about data is that people think well it must be like a big data dump Mm. you know Panama Papers style thing Mm. or else it's all digital information it's something like on a USB or whatever whereas actually it's personal information yeah, so even if it's yeah. stuff that's written down in a notebook or an email exchange mm. then that's covered so we talked about that um, and but I started off by asking Jill if, if there was a kind of typical day for her at the office I guess the days changed a little um, it, when when there was just a print product and it was a is a product that would come out you know towards the end of the day then you would have a you would have a peak so life would definitely get busier as the the day went on um, and there, you know, there would be quite a big peak. Whereas there's more plateau now because online, people are breaking stories online all the time. So, um, on one level, there's not the big peak that there was. So the day is slightly differently structured. But on the other hand, um, there's still print, so there is still a focus, and and the day definitely gets busier as it as it moves on. And yes, most of the, <coughs> most of the um, journalists are on a sort of self referral basis. So. <coughs> we need them to be spotting legal problems where they think they are and coming and having discussions with the lawyers and the earlier the better really in that in that sense <coughs> and so you kind of you you assume that the journalists themselves are, are aware of some of the dangers that they might be facing on on pretty much everyday stories yeah i think you know one's got to expect journalists to take some responsibility for what they publish again back in the day when there was just a print edition once a day the lawyers could see every story at the end of the day and check it through Um, the volume of copy now you know comes out all day some of it goes online there's no physical copy of it Uh, so yes we have to rely on journalists but we do quite a lot of internal training both big and small you know small groups uh, picking up on, on on things for business desk or pictures and targeting um, particular areas as well as for the subs because, you know, it's a sort of joint effort for everybody starting from the journalists, the sub, the, the, the last person to press the button, any of them, um, you know, if they spot a problem, we all want to work together as a team just to make sure we get stuff out safely. 
Now, you, you mentioned um, you, you're kind of doing in-house training effectively with, with some of the journalists, and you, you, you told the students a lot of that, the focus now is on data and data protection and, the, and all this, the stuff that flows from, from la- the, the Act last year. How is, how is that working out? How, what, are the, what are the main kind of warning signs for you when, when a journalist approaches you and said, I've got this data on somebody, what are we going to do with it? Well, I think, I mean, I think the key thing for us is that journalists realise that, that, that personal data is a very, very broad definition and it's, it's almost anything, name, picture. So they come and have a discussion, uh, uh, particularly in a way, you know, what used to be the sort of more peripheral people in a story, the ones that are in there, not because they're the main focus of the story, but because they give the story that colour and depth that stories have. Um, and, and you need to be thinking about um, what the public interest is in including their picture or their name. You know, particularly if, if you've got a leaked document and it says Joan Smith, who's the secretary to the man at the top, there's no possible justification for putting Joan Smith's name into the story or using the picture of the document with her name in. So you've got to be making those sort of thought processes um, and they've got to be done, obviously, before you publish. And because in the past, defamation and truth were, were, were really the most important things and public interest didn't really have a, a, a necessary role to play in a truth case. But nowadays, you need to be thinking about public interest um, and on, on, on what the public interest is. Even if something's true and you know it's true, you know, the picture, the letter or whatever it is, you've still got to ask yourself a second question. Uh, and that's, yeah, a sort of change, I think, in attitude and approach over the years. I suppose for a lot of people, people think data, well, that's, that's some digital storage device or something like that. But, but what you're saying is that data can be all sorts of information and that journalists have to be conscious of that. Yeah, I think that's right. And it, I mean, it's a sort of twofold thing because it's, it's, it's the personal data. So the name, the email address, but the picture of them, the picture of their front door or the car number plate or, or anything that identifies them. And then the other side of the data protection stuff is that if you're processing that data, then that's where you have to be careful. And actually, journalists process personal data all the time, and they may not realise they're doing it. But, you know, sending an email with someone's name in, sending a right-to-reply letter is, is processing personal data. Keeping the data is processing it. So, you know, the, those two things combined mean that day-to-day, journalists are interacting with the Data Protection Act all the time. Now, of course, there's a journalistic exemption that gives them quite a lot of protection other than the, the fact that they always have to keep personal data securely. Um, but the, the journalistic exemption is predicated on having thought about the public interest in advance, really. And you you were saying that you're, a lot of your general advice to journalists is don't keep it, keep less than you expect. But that must have a, implications, consequences for the way that you can archive stuff and hold on to things that you would normally hold on to anyway. Yes, and I'm, I'm, I mean, I think, you know, there's a... There's no, there's no right answer to this. And I, I was only yesterday having a discussion with one of our journalists who's, who's been an investigative journalist for a long time and says, but, you know, I keep all this data because there will be names in there that will come up. And I think that as long as you've thought about it and you can say, if you're asked, I'm keeping this data because in it is this or stuff that I think might have some value down the line, um, the the. The ICO, the Information Commissioner, in their guidance for the media, appears to accept that journalists will keep data and may keep data for a long time, particularly contacts, but also other data, and they may not use it immediately. 
Um, and they may not even publish a story about it immediately. Um, but what I think the ICO is indicating that they expect is that journalists will be able to say that they review that data, what they're keeping and why, regularly, um, particularly if that's data um, that's of the sensitive nature, so you know about sex or health or those sorts of things. And, and so we're just journalists just having to, I think, change. Yes, and you know, from having. 10, 15 years ago, always said to journalists, keep everything, don't throw anything away. Now I'm going, keep less. Um, you know, less is best, definitely. And the overriding thing with this, and uh, you, you talked a little bit about how the the, the ethical codes, um, courts will, uh, sorry, the ethical codes are becoming, are, are being used by lawyers and, and in court and so on. And so the, the, an understanding of those codes and an understanding of the public interest and reviewing all of them as you progress through a story, you're saying that's quite important as well. Yes, I mean, you know, most organisations, um, certainly national national news organisations or the broadcasters have got ethical codes. Um, but there's a sort of tendency to put those to one side. And actually, in the Data Protection Act, the journalistic exemption, there's a specific reference to editorial codes. If you're doing responsible journalism under Section 4 of the Defamation Act and you want to rely on that, the courts are going to look at the code and say, well, you know, hang on, your code says this and you haven't done that or you've disregarded that. So you say they're, they're taking on a, um, a sort of evidential practical value that possibly they haven't had in the past. Overall, is, is the environment now harder for journalists, for people doing good journalism, people doing investigative journalism? Is all of this a, a big obstacle? Is it going to get worse? Yeah, I think, I think it is. Um, I, I think that you know the Data Protection Act, particularly combined with privacy, um, is making life very hard. And whereas the Defamation Act 2013, we, we sort of celebrated, it was good, it relaxed quite a few things. Nowadays, we're being trumped on data and, and, and privacy. And you know, in addition to that, there's a multiplicity of new offences, not aimed at journalists, but that can catch journalists out the Computer Misuse Act, you know, criminal offences that if you're not careful about and you're not savvy about can really cause you some, some difficulty. So I, I think it is very difficult for, for journalists, the environment. Is there anything that gives you any hope that, that maybe good journalism will, will kind of continue throughout this despite all these hurdles? Yeah, because I think that, you know, the thing, the thing about the Data Protection Act is the public interest. And if you're doing good public interest journalism and you've thought about it and identified it, that should trump. It's just a question of working that process through in a way that we haven't quite been used to in the, in the past. So I live in hope. Okay. Well, Jill Phillips, thanks very much indeed for, for coming on Bang to Rights. And thanks very, very much indeed for coming to, to, Manchester's, to Manchester Metropolitan Uni today. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks for asking me. So, um, Gillian Phillips uh, from The Guardian, and uh, she said that she might be able to come back next year, which would be great. So we'll mm. get uh, another batch of students to, to speak to her then. And, uh, and uh, that was, I think that was really useful. So a huge thanks to, to Jill for, for coming uh, up to, to MMU and uh, coming on, on Bang to Rights. Um, but that is just about it for, um, for this week. Um, but before we go, um, Dave, Jess, what, what can the students expect? Well, uh, picking up from where Jill left off, we're actually going to be doing DPA next week, yeah. Data Protection Act and the GDPR, so great timing. It mm. is, yeah. And for the Level 6's Law and Ethics, we're doing uh, ethical curation of news. So inevitably data protection will come into that as well, so rather timely mm. as well. Yeah, good. 
So yeah, um, hopefully the students will, will get something from all of that. So we have been this week, Bang to Rights. Um, remember, you can subscribe to Bang to Rights on Apple Podcasts, and as usual, you'll find us on Stitcher, or you can search for Bang to Rights on the MMU Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. That's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. And Dave, remember, plug plug Northern Quota. Definitely. Come, yeah. and, come, and, come and write a story. Yeah. Do do have uh, do subscribe to to Northern Quota as well and um, check it out and uh, you remember you can contribute to Northern Quota if you're whatever you're up to uh, in as a student journalist and um, do feel free to get in touch with the editor and uh, we'll take your take your stories on board but in the meantime um, please do give us a rating it helps spread the word helps others find us you can tweet us at rightsbang and follow us for updates about the podcast and cases and stories we're following in the courts and in the news do let us know if there are topics or issues from your lectures or from your reading that you want us to cover in future editions but in the meantime thanks for listening and we'll see you soon <laughs>